This is the Bossit Podcast, a podcast for software entrepreneurs predominantly. Um, which has been going for quite some time. I think we're about sort of 80 odd episodes at the moment. And we've covered a wide range of, of topics. But now with season three, I'm focusing much more wanting to talk to the leaders of the software companies to find out their background, their experiences, um, their journey. And I've got a really good guest today who I've spoken to before, um, part of a very interesting company. But before I do, I had a lot of feedback, actually. Over the last couple of weeks, I've had quite a few emails. And for Steve Simmons, that's just to prove that 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 is a real background I have behind me. (laughs) He didn't believe believe that it was. But please do give me the feedback. And also, if you can, link to me on, on LinkedIn because we're going to be doing a survey, trying to find out what it is that you, what topics you would like to see covered um, with the Bossit podcast. So over to today's guest, who is John Taylor from Action AI. Welcome, John. Thanks, Thanks. for joining me. No, it's an absolute pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. I love the, I love your, your business and, and what you're doing. And I think it's something that demonstrates you, you can do a great demo. So first of all, before we start, I'll ask you perhaps a little bit of a controversial question. We'll see. Does AI really exist? <laughs> um, <laughs> well, it's a pretty broad term, isn't it? That's it is. Much used and much misused. So maybe I'll answer it by saying that um, it, it does, in, uh, but the definition is interesting. And so I think what we're talking about probably here is maybe the current phase of AI, and we'll call that machine learning to give it some sort of label, which is also extraordinarily broad. I, and I think... Um, Perhaps what we have seen in the last, particularly the last two or three years, is the label AI attached to just about everything. Yes, exactly. We can think of. And sometimes that is, of course, with complete merit, but perhaps sometimes it isn't. So I I tend to think of the areas within AI, of which there are many. And so to to be slightly dull for a second, I have a company that's in machine learning, computational linguistics, which is a, a niche, an area of AI that in of itself has a whole... Um, academic history, a uh, whole industrial history too, in fact. Um, and that the same can be true for computer vision and we could go on for some time. So the question is always, um, what does that mean? And, and let's make it, let's talk about a particular area. So I'm avoiding your question slightly there, aren't I? So AI exists, but it's a journey. And we're, we're at the point now, I think what we're at now though, which is why perhaps there is genuine excitement and rightly so, is we're at a point where uh, computational power, the algorithms that are much discussed, um, and the, the techniques and methods are at such a point where we can start to apply what we'll broadly call AI in extraordinarily useful ways. So long as we think carefully about what the technology can do, it's be, be truthful about its capabilities and think really hard about the use cases. But we are, there's no question, we're at some really quite extraordinary inflection point. Um, and that's, so the hype is, inverted commas, real, but perhaps we could all just do to simmer down slightly and just talk truthfully about what can be achieved. And that is a great deal and it is exciting, but I think keeping a lid on that a little bit is part of the job of people like yourself and, and me, I guess. Yes. And it's been, it's been talked about for decades and I think you're absolutely right. It has been overhyped and that's created a certain amount of cynicism, but I think probably for me, you know, what I've seen within the marketplace is that there's been a lot of, of, of progress just in probably the last two years, 18 months, which does, it is really exciting what we're starting to see now. No, I believe so. And you, you, you see the, the stories you see in the popular press and the media, albeit maybe not 100% accurate, they're starting to point to real world applications, whether that's in healthcare or, or in customer service yes. or whatever it may be. And I think that's where we, all of us in the sector, but also if you like the people we're working with and colleagues and people where you know, enterprises we're doing work with, their knowledge is building really, really rapidly, which is exciting, but it's a steep curve. And it's a, and when you get into the depths of, for example, the area we're in, you know, it becomes a fundamentally, its foundations are in academia. And, and that is where a lot of the progress has been made over the last number of decades. There's some great work coming out of industry as well now. And that's starting to, I suppose, converge. And we're starting to see the fruits of that, which is, yeah, tremendously exciting. If I look at where we are, we're in a space that, you know, your listeners will know, will have heard the word chatbot, no doubt. But all the chatbot really meant when they first were talked about, which is about 2016, about five years ago, when they really were talked about tremendously, were text-based services that looked a lot like web chat. You you go to a retailer and you have a web chat with a human being. It was essentially automating that process, which had the benefits of 
speed and availability 24-7 and all of that good stuff. But actually what, we, what we're really looking at a lot more now, of course, are voice services. So people have used an Amazon Alexa or a Google Home can start to glimpse, and it is only a glimpse admittedly, the potential of those channels. And so with an Alexa, you can get the weather tomorrow and switch on radio to it, and that's great, but you can't have a conversation. And that's the world we're operating in. You know, How do we enable people, human beings, just us, to converse with an automaton, really a business, if you like, in a way that's empathetic, we're understood first time every time and we get a great service and that's not a low bar and and chatbots have had their moments of utility but haven't delighted us haven't made us feel like we're dealing with a a human-like service and and that's the world that we're working in and that's the problem where well that's the problem we've solved i suppose that's that's our contribution to this huge field of ai just understanding human beings when they when they talk and if we can understand them then we can respond meaningfully in a way, very much like a human would. Not pretending to be human, this is not the Turing test, but if you're talking to your bank and you say anything you like about banking, well, reasonably you ought to be understood. And if you're talking to your travel company about travel or to your healthcare insurer about healthcare insurance, you know, you should be understood. That's your expectation. It's it's the minimum you should experience as a, as a customer. And that's the world where in enabling that to happen. I, I've seen your, your software demonstrate a number of times now, and I was really impressed. In fact, so much so that I asked um, one of my colleagues to join one of the demonstrations because he was a little bit cynical, not only about the typical software demonstration that you typically see, yeah. but also this whole area of, of conversational AI, chatbots and AI. And, and it changed his view totally. But I, I want to get, there's a number of things that you mentioned there that I want to go into talking about what Action AI can do. But before I do, let's let's find out a little bit about your background. What got you into the software sector? That's a good question. Um, so I, I suppose I'd started other, uh, actually I started a small software business a long time ago during university actually to pay some fees. That was a long time ago, that's in the 90s. But that was a small, I guess, flirtation with it, but it gave me yeah. a bit of a taste. And that yeah. was coming up to the dot-com boom. And I did very many other things. And really what brought me to software, I suppose, was having a, a good friend who actually is the CTO of our company, the co-founder now, who was quite brilliant technically, but also had a very strong um, understanding of commercial application, which, you know, the two don't always go together. Uh, and he and I would sit and, I suppose, think of ideas, but also think of things that we thought would be meaningful and try to devise businesses that would have genuine impact that we thought we could scale, but also that try to address something a little bit frightening in the beginning. So we weren't thinking of, which was tempting, but taking a model, let's say from the US, turning it a little bit, 10 degrees and doing something here in the UK. Great that those businesses are, and we know lots of them that have been hugely successful, but how do we do something really pioneering? Which, you know, I guess is harder, but has been a much more exciting journey. So this is not, this is probably my second sort of proper, if you like, um, software startup, but arguably my third. Uh, and, I ha- and, and I've done the work in consulting and set up a consulting company, got that to profit, got that taken over. So I've done a various, I suppose, maybe I've done a few things that are entrepreneurial. My dad was an entrepreneur, which I sometimes, you know, I deny that in a sense as my origin, but the, more, the older I get, the more I realize that that's probably the case. Not at all in software, but he was, yeah, he was an entrepreneur, set something up in civil engineering. Couldn't be more different. Yes. Some of the trends and some of the highs and some of the lows are remarkably similar so i suppose you get a taste for it at a certain age and for whatever reason yeah i'm crazy enough to pursue these these what are very high risk things at the beginning it's all great now but of course in the first year or two it's as you know very well there's plenty of risk and you know not many answers to not to, to most of the questions when did you when did you first think of yourself as an entrepreneur if you use that word then, I mean, when we we're probably quite young, we probably wouldn't have thought of ourselves as entrepreneur as such. And I, st- I can't, I, in some ways I still don't. So I never use that label. I, I never define, describe myself as that. Uh, I don't know why I don't, but I never do. So right. I, I use that as a shorthand to explain it. But actually, sometimes maybe in the software industry, and, and I spent a bit of time in Silicon Valley, so perhaps, I have a, perhaps that's influenced this. The kind of software entrepreneur suggests someone who dresses in a particular way is having a, it denotes a certain lifestyle and a certain approach. And maybe, and some of that's fun and great and all, all of that. Yes. But actually building a business, whether it's a software business, a hardware business, a tennis racket, tennis racket manufacturing business is a hard grind about, you know, employing great people, which is hard, recruiting and mm-hmm. great people. It's about funding. It's about sales. It's about all those things that are, critical and the real part of business so it's a fine label it's just tends to be applied to 
you know, a set of people, maybe sometimes in London, certainly 10 or 15 years ago, much less now, who, you know, love the image, but frankly, yes. probably didn't know what they were doing. I think that's not sure. the case now. And I think we've matured so much in the US, especially, but also in the UK now. And actually, I've seen it in France and Berlin, other places where that label now denotes some probably pretty serious people getting together to do great things. So I'm much happier with it now. But for a long time, I suppose I just avoided it. Um, but yeah. You know, I, so how old do you think you were when you when you had that vision? The vision for this business? Or that you wanted to start a business? I don't think I ever thought about it in that way. I, perhaps I always started small things without thinking there were businesses. You mm. know, sweet shops and tuck shops at university or whatever it was to raise money for charity. Yes. I, mean, I, I just did those sorts of things and maybe I didn't think about them. But I suppose yeah. I enjoy that. Uh, and I don't mind. I've never mind working for other people. I've done it plenty. So I'm, mm. I'm quite okay with that, but it's fair to say, I suppose that maybe I look at um, look at the world a little bit and question lots of aspects to it, of it, and then think, well, maybe I can improve this little bit of it or make an impact here. And mm. that that gets me out of bed in the morning when you know not every day in every startup can be skipping out of bed full of joy. That isn't how this works. No, but actually, if you're driven enough by that and the vision, and you're surrounded by great people, which is why the entrepreneur thing is not misleading, but it suggests there's some heroic, amazing individual. And that certainly isn't the case for me. You know, I have a co-founder who's superb, but actually think of the people I now work with, you know, it's a miracle we got them in the first place and kept them. But actually that's the engine. That, that's, they're the inspiration people mostly in my business. You know, I, I, as an entrepreneur business like mine, you know, I, I may do some exciting strategic things, but, but I'm also the guy who you know, needs to empty the bins and make sure people get paid and all of that. Perhaps less glamorous, but critical part. So, you know, a lot of the brains in this business uh, are, are going to be in, you know, distributed and lots of other heads who are of a measurable importance um, to me and to this company. So, so how long ago did you start? And the, the vision or what you were planning to do at that time, how much has that changed in the interim? Yeah, good question. So we started this really properly in early 2016. And the reason we started this particular business is because we had some insights or we thought we had some insights into what the market would do. And we thought that big tech companies like Facebook and Microsoft and Google were going to launch chatbots, automated services for people to communicate. Mm. Uh, and, and so they did uh, a few months later. But we thought, and this was, this is going to sound arrogant and it, it may have been slightly, but our hypothesis was because of the people we knew in the field that whilst that had tremendous potential, it wasn't really going to work in terms of delightful automation. It was going to have, make a dint. It was going to be interesting but it wasn't really going to change our behavior or change the way we interact. That, that was our hypothesis anyway. But truthfully, we had some ideas of how to do it, not a great many. So we didn't even know all the questions that are the answers. But that one central, I suppose, hope, vision, uh, ambition, hypothesis has remained true today uh, for, for good or ill. That has. But everything else, of course, has moved tremendously. So we're now, I mean, the, the business looks radically different from day one. I think the vision of it is almost the same. We express it differently, but it's about delightful automation. It always was. We always said that the big guys would do a good, they're full of smart people and great engineers, but that in this particular domain of, of language, that they would boil the ocean of language so we can ask anything, height of Kilimanjaro, turn on Radio 4, but they probably wouldn't dig deep wells of language in, let's say, banking or in healthcare insurance. And without those deep wells, we as human beings just can't converse, use vernacular, change our minds, throw things in, not in quotes, speak in a logical order, which yes. is what I'm not doing now. So, so that hasn't changed, but of course, execution has changed immeasurably and we've made plenty of mistakes and we've explored. We were a research business for the first few years. And so you research things that you hope will work and when they do, it's honestly like Christmas day, but not everything does. You know, this is high risk, early stage particularly was very high risk research into things that we partially understood largely from things that we had done or seen in academia and some worked and some didn't fortunately now all the key bits work but uh, they didn't on day one or day 300 or day 600 obviously um so things move on but uh yes very different feeling now yeah making mistakes is just part of running a business what do you think was the the basic biggest mistake that you made that that had a positive outcome for you and what did you learn from it yeah, I think probably one of the things we took a while to do was to build, we, we had a team of researchers and we needed to bolster that team. And we, we knew we did, intellectually, we knew we did. Mm. 
but I suppose there was a reticence because when you have a business like like this, particularly at an early stage, you're very, very keen and rightly so to commercialize early because you want to get something, you need feedback, you want to get into the market. But actually there's a temptation, particularly in a, a deep tech company like ours, to somewhat cut the cloth of the solution and say, well, look, we're, we're 64% of the way there. That's good enough. Let's go to market. And that's actually often true in software. It's often the best thing to do. However, in conversational, in the work we do, it isn't because it's a bit binary. We're all experts. Mm. Everyone listening to this speaks a language, if, if not more than one. We're all experts. Yes. If I give any of the people podcast or you a service and say to you, use this, what do you think? Well, if you think it doesn't work, you're correct. You're a human being, you're using a service, you should be understood, it's a reasonable expectation to have, and if you're not, it's not okay. So the bar in our area is incredibly high, it's arguably binary. It's either good enough for people to use, which is an incredibly high bar, because people talk in complex ways and say lots of things at once, at different speeds, and or it's just not. So we, so you know, there's always commercial pressures on a business like this early on to, to get something in the market at 64%. Well, it's fine to test that. But actually, what, what I think I wish we'd done, we weren't too late, probably in six months, but I would have loved to grab a couple of people we, we then grabbed who turned out to be instrumental in everything and extraordinary to move the 64 to 84 and 93 and so on. So, yeah, it's a lesson. And I think it's a, for deep tech, it's a tough dynamic because you, know, you want to build a real business. I want, you know, I'm pretty traditional. I like businesses that make money and have sales. And I worry about those things. That's what we do. We manage costs yes. very carefully. And so in deep tech, that works. But of course, you know, it's a, it's a relatively patient game. If you're going to make a really big impact in this sort of world, you're probably going to be doing what, what really looks an awful lot like research for maybe two, maybe three, maybe four years before you've got something that you and I would look at and say, I really get that. With a bit of tweaking, that's going to be extraordinary because you need to be extraordinary. And in, on day 300 and day 600, it may, you know, frankly, trying to put it all together to show you, you'd say to me, well, that's interesting, John, but where's the differentiator? And I'd be able to tell you and explain, and you're a smart guy, you'd understand it, but you couldn't see it. And not, not unreasonably, you might think, well, that's great, guys, come back when you've got it. So your point about live demos is, we do live demos only because if it's state of the art, which, which it is, so no one's ever seen it before, it's not much use me talking about it because quite reasonably, if I were on the other side of the table, I'd say, well, this all sounds great, but, you know, where is it? So, yes. so, so you have to, you know, it's the great, it's the great proof, isn't it? Yes. We always do live demos because then people get a genuine sense of an, of a proper system. And then I, that's it. I, I think with, with what you offer and your solution, I think you could do away with PowerPoint, you know, quick introduction. Let me show you. I think that says so much, and I agree with you. I hadn't really thought about that, but there are solutions out there that actually have been successful. They've not necessarily been the best, but there's a lot of other aspects of the business that has helped that business to grow successfully. But it's quite different for yourself. One missed aspect of the question, and you're going to get completely the wrong answer, and that's really going to be highlighted. Yeah, no, meaning is incredibly sensitive to the words we use, the speed we say. Mm. You're absolutely right. And it, it won't get it wrong, but what it will do is, it, at worst, it will not understand you. But, but that's no good. If you're talking to a bank and you say, you know, how's my cash looking? Has Fred paid me yet? Well, of course, we all know what that means. And, it, it, mm. and if it can't deal with that, it's, it's kind of useless, isn't it? So mm. you know that how's the cash looking is just a balance query. That's nothing complex there. And as Fred paid me, well, you know, it's self-evident to you and I and everyone listening what that means. Of course it is. So, but that's actually extremely hard to do. Computers don't, you know, they're like logical structures and decision trees. And that's not how language works. It's not how we express ourselves. It's not how we want to be supported. But that's the level. So you're right. Yeah, the bar's high and that's, so it's tougher in some ways. Mm. Patience required early on is, is greater. And so when you're choosing, for example, investors, which we obviously external investors, you've got to be really careful about who we've been obviously incredibly fortunate, but you've got to be really careful about who those people are and mm. and be pretty candid as well about at least at the point you understand it, what you think the journey is going to be. And you won't be right. The journey forecasting two years out is tantamount to impossible. Yes. If you try and give a sense of it, that partly your reality, part of your hopes and and hope that they understand that and then support you. And as I say, we've been absolutely blessed, which is phenomenal. But we did have to set expectations in a positive way that the opportunity is, yeah, it might be absolutely extraordinary. But the risk at the beginning is commensurate with that. It's an extraordinary risk. Now, the risk is now obviously vastly lower, but, you know, that's that's a few years in.
Mm. What are the problems that you address right now? What are the biggest problems that you think that you can address? I suppose the, the, the fundamental of it at a very high level is at the moment, it is very difficult indeed to pick up the telephone and have a conversation with an automated service and be understood and keep going. I'm just calling about this. How's that looking? Oh, no, I've changed my mind. Actually, can you tell me about my mortgage? And what's all of that described as normal interaction for, in that case, obviously, it was a banking example, isn't possible. So if we take the world of IVRs, which if, for all of us, you know, when you make, call the number and it says maybe press one, press three, or more likely, why are you calling? And you might say, look, my credit card was stolen. And sometimes we're understood, aren't we? And sometimes we are not. But that's that's really often dealing with just a single thing I said, you know, my credit card was stolen. Well, actually, I'm calling because I'm concerned because, you know, I just paid for this five minutes ago and I want that transaction to go through. But I'm, con- you know, and, I, and what I'm going to say is more complex than credit card fraud and then be rooted to a human. Actually, you know, there may be times when it's effective for me not to speak to anybody, get what I want done quickly and move on in my convenience. Sometimes it's really important to speak with people. Of course it is. And sometimes if I'm a bank, I really want to speak with my customers. If I'm calling and I say, look, I'm really keen to borrow a couple of million pounds from my industrial expansion. That's a big amount of money. And the bank clearly has got a commercial reason to speak with me and I probably will be an important customer. But if I'm just calling to say, you know, I'm off on holiday to Spain, can you make sure my credit card works? Well, I don't really want to wait in a queue to do that. I don't really want to speak to my bank. And what's been really interesting in the whole world of, I suppose we'll call it customer care, customer service very broadly is, when organizations, enterprises launch new digital channels, you know, new functionality in a mobile app, they get more calls. Because, of course, what happens is there's some new feature in an app. Someone opens their app and now they can scan a check, for example, a physical check. Who uses those anymore? But anyway, they do. You scan a physical check and it all works as if and it does work. But, of course, people don't understand how that works. They're nervous. What is, how is this? So, of course, they pick up the phone and pretty much everything that gets added to a digital channel, ironically, perhaps, and perversely, creates a, a spike in, in calls. And you know we all know the tragedy of the recent pandemic, the strain on customer care generally for the individuals calling, you know, it's been tough. And for the businesses to support that, it's been tantamount to impossible. You know, we know a financial service organization very well who, you know, were having people, their staff physically, you know, typing manually into SMS text messages to talk to their customers. Well, that was brilliant they made that initiative. They cared, we're all delighted they did. But their ability to deal with volume was obviously extraordinarily limited. It just wasn't really there. And so, you know, this is not about saying, well, human beings don't have a role. They absolutely have a role, absolutely have a role. But often we just want to get something done and I want to pick up the phone or maybe I just want to type to something or maybe I just want to use a web interface. It doesn't matter. We're agnostic about channel, but the phone's a good example. And we're all used to the telephone. But if I can call it and in a minute and a half be done, 24 seven when it suits me that's great sometimes i really want to speak to somebody but then i just ask oh, i want to speak to somebody it's really important it's you know whatever the, the, i'm waiting to sign off on my house today i'm yes go through to somebody this is not a barrier it's a complimentary way of doing things so it's just trying to change it's an i guess it's a new paradigm of interface all of us to get things done that we want to do in this way and we will still speak with people of course we will we'll still use mobile apps we'll still use the web absolutely yes. But we've got this new complementary capability that that currently is extraordinarily frustrating in some cases and also very, very expensive to deliver for many enterprises. So I can be a happier customer because I get served quickly and accurately and well. Yes. The enterprise can save money. Um, you know, the, there are lots of lots of benefits, loyalty, um, retention, and, and that's the world we're looking at. So yes. it's, tr- it's a transformative thing, but it, in one level, it's incredibly simple. It's just saying, if you pick up this call and you speak about, your banking or your healthcare, whatever it is, you'll be understood. If you say to your bank, can you get me a skiing holiday? Well, that's not going to work. The bank's at best going to say, you know, we don't do holidays. Fair enough. But if you go to about payments and what happened last month and, you know, how much they spend in January of 2020 compared with, there's lots of things you may say that the, the bank can deal with. They've got the internal systems. They just give you an answer and you think, great, that's it. All right, the payment's in. That's all I need to know. Thank you. 30 seconds, you're done. Mm. I did. I think what what impressed me and, and, and my mind, I was, I was sort of seeing the opportunities for the technology that you've got. Is I think that the natural inclination is to always compare. How does this compare to to a human operator? But I can actually see times when 
it wasn't the second best option because I want to get information. I only need a small bit of information and I want it very quickly. I phoned yesterday trying to get through and I was immediately told I'm 20th in the queue. That's very frustrating. But I can also think of times when trying to get through to maybe customer support in some way and the person on the other end, from my perspective, doesn't seem to have a great deal of empathy with the problem that I've got. Whereas something that you've built into your technology is the ability to have an empathetic voice, which really, it really made me think, you know, that was a point that was made. But when I heard it, I thought, I really get that. Because I think, you know, even the best operator, and I think that there was, there was a study done of, of, this was actually in courts in America of judges, and, and they saw that in the afternoon, if you're a criminal, you want to make sure you go in the morning because in the afternoon, <laughs> the judgments are much harsher because they're tired. Well, that's going to apply to all of us and to customer service, where the technology is going to be consistent. Yeah, I think that's right. And so when we're talking about conversations here, we're, we're not talking about an automaton that sounds like a robot, mm. nor are we saying it pretends to be human, but it speaks with a nice voice. It, if it's if it's deployed in Ireland, it speaks with an Irish accent. If it's in Australia, it speaks with an Australian accent. If it's in the UK and so on. And it speaks empathetically and in a considered way. And it and it doesn't do things that you don't want it to do. So if you say, look, I want a flight to Paris tomorrow you know, with wherever from Stansted, it's going to go and look for that, but it's going to somewhat help you along the journey. It's going to confirm to you. And it may then say, that no problem, we've got these from Stan said, do you want to make a seat reservation? It's going to lead you through like, as a human would. But, but the, the important thing is it's not pretending to be human. And we recognize that, you know, mm. human-like. And human-like means it, it's, it's empathetic. It understands me. But if I want to have a chat about how I'm feeling or about what I saw in the press this morning, that's not what it's there for. It clearly no. is. And it, and it will be the best option in probably the super majority of cases because of the way customer service works for a lot of companies. So we think about healthcare insurance for the sake of conversation, it's an area we work in. If you look at the calls, some of those calls, self-evidently health insurance can be of incredible use at people's moment of most crisis. It really is you know, really important. And in those situations with a complex query, it seems appropriate to speak to a human being, I think. You know, it depends how complicated, but it does. But the supermajority of queries, when you look at the data, and I can't say which companies, but I've seen a number. When you look at the data, the supermajority of queries are actually, where's my insurance card? I went to the pharmacy this morning, this is a US example, and I was rejected for my son's prescription, what's going on with my insurance? To which someone needs to say, well, well, I'm just checking that for you now. Your insurance is still valid, but we notice you've got a, whatever, a $75 copay. There's a conversation there. And actually, I'm then informed, and I'll oh, get it, right, okay, so... Uh, it's not active. So a lot of this, you can, a lot of those queries, the super majority, you can handle in a delightful way for me as a, as a, an insured member. But we recognize, of course, that, you know, sometimes really difficult things happen in the healthcare industry, you know, in someone's health, it's critical. So of course, you're going to speak with them at that point. But it's extraordinary. And the same is true in financial services, by and large. Most of the conversations that exist are about, they're not simple, but they're about things that you can automate to the satisfaction of everybody. You know, if you're going on holiday, you want to make sure cards were, then you want to check your balance, then you want to check someone's paid you. All of this is information you want to get. Um, you're not, you can ask for advice, but it's not really about an advisory thing so much as it is help me do banking or help me with my health insurance. Where am I? Has it been transferred yet? Is my wife now attached to the policy or my partner? What about my kids? We can handle all of this because it's just, if you understand how people are going to behave, uh, then you can support it. And, it. and it has to be all of this. It's not, um, you know, you can't stand in front of a whiteboard and assume how people will converse. It, it, it fails every time and it, it always does. But if you can look at authentic ways that people currently communicate, for like authentic data, and say, well, look, this is what they're doing now. We just want to be able to do that in the same way. And maybe it's quicker and there's no wait times and sure it's better in many ways, but that's what we're trying to do. But when they call about this, this long tail idiosyncratic thing, or to pick a really grim example, you know, it's something very sad. It's appropriate to speak to them, and healthcare companies want to speak to them, right? They're, they're yes. not saying, "Oh, we don't, we don't want to speak to our customers." But in a lot of cases, we're we're working in fields where net promoter score is not very high, because mm. people are frustrated. They can't access the service they want when they want it. They have long wait times. When they get through, sometimes they get the most extraordinary service, but sometimes they don't. So your point about consistency is well made. 
So this service, of course, is entirely consistent and is auditable. So what happens, the world of speech works actually, the whole point, the whole way it works is when people say things, it gets moved into text. So whenever you use an Alexa or a service or a chatbot, that service is effectively interrogating the text that came from what we said. So that speak to text piece obviously is critical. But the beauty of view that brilliantly, which we've had to invent technology around this, but anyway, we now do that, I think, to a very high standard. Therefore, that, if you like, that text record is there forever. Which is, if the, so if the customer is happy for that to remain persistent, it means that when I'm auditing quality in my customer service center with 5,000 seats, I have a vastly easier job and I know it's already been consistent. So that changes all of, so compliance and audit may not be it's exciting, but actually it's critical. It is, yes. really make that far simpler. So consistency matters, empathetic <clears throat> consistency, and, and not never overgeneralizing. You know, we talked about AI at the beginning. Mm. AI loves to generalize. Yes. That's a very powerful thing to do. But in language, it's also extraordinarily dangerous if not managed carefully. Because yes. I might say, I'm just calling, you know, I mean, let's create a silly example. I've lost my balance and I'm calling to see who paid me last. Well, it'll give me my balance, right? So I'm picking a very silly example. The point is that you have to be very, um, very careful and, and know that you know before giving people numbers that they then make, might make a transaction on the basis of, or make a healthcare decision about a pharmacy, which sounds mm. pretty, it doesn't matter, right? They're now driving 12 miles to a different pharmacy, they didn't need to. So accuracy is everything, and that's a whole, if, any, mm. if, if anything, that's been probably the area of consistently the most work, less now, but in the first two or three years, consistently the hardest part. How do you ensure accuracy, reassure users, and never, never get it wrong fine to clarify fine to say i'm looking at this for you but it's never fine to just wander off with the wrong information and get it wrong because that's frustrating at you know best and actually commercially really damaging for the for the human otherwise for for me for the person yes yes and and and, and i think i wanted to ask you a question on that on the sort of more on the technical side but i think the other aspect that um not maybe everybody immediately thinks about is that this can also be used for two-way communication so yes you can go in and you can interrogate with the examples you've, you've gave with interrogating the bank to find out what your bank balance but also something that really touched me was um completing forms i hate completing forms sitting down and completing a form or doing it online i hate doing that but having somebody there that could do that just from voice and give guidance, but also encouragement. I was really impressed by that. You know, you're halfway there. Now, for me, that's really important because I hate anything to do with forms. Yeah, so the, the form-filling world is something we spend a lot of time on for the reasons yeah. you're So when someone has a, you know, if, if the form just says, what's your name and address, fine. But most forms, as we know, whether it's applying for insurance or or dealing with a company we work with called Anissio around affordability assessments, people have loans or want to take a mortgage, and they're asked numerous questions about their income and expenditure. <laughs> It tends to be a telephone-based process. It's tedious for all concerned, expensive to deliver, pretty um, disheartening when you're the, on the other end of it as you know, as the customer. But actually often people just want to be able to pick that conversation up, if you like, drop it, start it again whenever they choose in their front room at their office with a glass of wine and say, what do you mean by that? What, what do you want to know? What do you mean by, you know, where do I put this value? What do you mean, what on earth is this question? If I answer this, is this what you need? the way that we would if we had a person sitting next to us at helping us fill these forms in and we're all smart people we can all complete forms but forms forms take time and if you can just say seven things you know if you fill in a i'll give an, a, a kind of silly example there are affordability assessment forms that are used by banks and others and there'll be a whole section potentially on you know vehicles and public transport what do you spend on cars well of course you say i don't have a car well you've answered 10 questions i don't yes. have any kids will answer another 20 questions mm. So if I start by saying like yeah, I've, my mortgage is X, I don't I don't have kids or I don't have a car, well you know that's twenty seven questions completed before I even started, and then the thing goes and the service will say that's great that's great thanks very much for that. that's really helpful I wonder if we can now go on to this section and it will help me well yes that's tremendously helpful and I'm no longer on the telephone call in to, and to be a bit and it's not in a synchronous mode where I'm having to answer a question and I, you know most of us don't know what our gas bill was last month some may do but i couldn't tell you mine no so when i'm asked that question i start probably slightly panicking or scrolling around trying to find my bill or logging into something 
Well, actually, if I could answer that question another time, I might go away and get the information and start entering those values or saying gas is 50, my water's 30. But I'm not sure what you mean by this. Do you want me to stick this here or that? Well, that's that's fine and normal. So, yeah, it's just helping people get through complex or frustrating processes. And yeah, and voice or text can can help. It's a it's a it's a helper. And sometimes you don't need it. Sometimes you just enter a value. You know, sure. then you get on yes. with it. Yes. Hold your hand in a really helpful, non-patronizing, empathetic tone of voice. <laughs> And great. It's got it. But it, yeah, so we do a lot of work in that. And yeah, it's a very exciting field because there are a lot more forms than I ever dreamed of mm. in this world that are filled in by so many people in really quite frustrating processes. You mentioned earlier about the importance of accuracy and consistency. Now, how do you how do you make that work? I know that you, you work with language models for particular domains, but there's also a problem in the fact that a lot of the conversations will be happening via telephone lines. And the problem with that, I know, is that those that language is and the voice has been compressed, so it's taken away a lot of the quality. So that's tough. How do you combat that? So that I, I guess we've got quite a bit of IP in that, So that's it, but I can talk about it generally. So the, the capture sure. of, as you say, people speaking via the telephone and dealing with the background noise that there will inevitably be in life, walking down the street, even sitting at home, kids, people coughing, all the things that just are normal. Being able to also, I think, anticipate, which is hard, when people are going to finish speaking. Because what you want to do in a process, if I say something for 30 seconds, I'm asking a question about something, but I say all sorts of things. Well, we need to understand exactly what I said and what's meaningful and what may be not relevant. If I mentioned it was sunny, probably that's not relevant if I'm talking to my healthcare insurer. So we've got to understand what's what's relevant, what isn't. But we have to faithfully capture all of that. And what they call prosody, which is just a grand way of saying intonation and cadence and rhythm, all of these things in voice are, are, are tremendously important, really key. So quite a bit of our work was how on earth do you extract, as you say, from, you know, from less information? How do you capture all of that, all of those words really, and what they mean, which is, which is of course what we're really talking about here, in the right context such that you can then deliver a service and that's been yeah that's been a big area of well initially research and then a lot of hardcore engineering it's a it's a combination of what you might call the the research side which is the machine learning the computational linguistics and then advanced but if you like good old-fashioned engineering which is dealing with telephony um and the two put together is that that i guess bridging that has been something we've been working on for a long time and you know Happily, we've been very successful with it, but it, it was a very tough journey. So you're right, that's that's a hard bit. Accuracy is a little bit different. It's a different process, but that's all about how you classify language. So what we're not doing here, we, there's no, if you like, um, decision tree graph database where we someone says something and then we chase it down one route and then write, oh, was it yes or no? Or now we're down another decision tree. Of course, there's some logic in conversation. There always will be. People will start somewhere, they may finish somewhere, but in the middle, they'll go everywhere. Uh, they just will do that. So a lot of it, and you know, it starts to get very deep very quickly, this, but the way our models work is not, well, here's some words that we, we will somehow manually associate. It's data-driven. It's fundamentally data-driven. That data has to reflect the way people communicate now, today, in whatever channel, whatever use case, banking, healthcare. If it does so, then we've technology that's sophisticated enough to take from that relatively limited training data, and it's not magic, but the, the, the thing that appears to be magic is then to be able to take that limited amount of training data and deal with an extraordinary range of things that people will say. But it always will have fundamentally been driven from the data. Without data, that, that you can't begin. And so either our, comp our, our partners, our customers will share data, or we, or we will generate data. There's a whole other conversation there. But it's always data-driven, and that data has to be representative of the way we actually behave not how we would like the people to behave or imagine they would like to behave or or based on some logical graph database, which is often deployed and never works. Because, of course, what happens is people get two or three stages down there. Oh, no, what I meant was this. And anyway, what about that? Which is how, of course, we all converse typically in customer service. So the whole thing then falls apart. It just doesn't work. So the, the understanding telephone, yeah, that's been a, a big deal for us. And thankfully we've solved it but there are lots of different elements to that and it's non-trivial and the accuracy piece is a lot about being data driven and that data being authentic and real never imagined because if you imagine how people communicate you build a system based on how you imagine they'll communicate which is kind of where chatbots frankly 
they were very basic, but they, they, their limitations were felt very strongly. Yes. We imagined everyone to say, good morning, I would like my bank balance. And of course, precisely nobody says that. Um, so, you know, the struggle began there and continued for, for the chatbot world in general. Mm. I, I actually became a bit more of a fan of chatbot um, probably about a year ago. And my experience had been a little bit frustrating. And I tried these sort of online chatbots and various websites. And I was looking to buy a fire pit. And there were a number of different companies that I went to. And it was early in the morning. And I think it was a it was a really nice summer's day. And I was thinking it'd be great to have a fire pit. So I went onto a number of different websites and I was trying to get information. And the first one I went on to was a UK company and I had a number of questions. So I knew that there were many other suppliers of fire pits, but I had these sort of set questions. And it must have been sort of seven o'clock, seven thirty. So there was unlikely that there were going to be telephones manned. And I used the chatbot to ask the questions about the size uh, and the care of it. And the answers gave me everything I needed. So I just pushed, yeah. you know, buy. I didn't go to those other companies. And I did I get the best buy? Maybe not. But that seemed reasonable enough. I got my questions answered at a time when there wasn't going to be the owner wasn't going to be around it. I don't think it's a very big company. And I bought from them. Yeah. And I thought, actually, that's really worked from a sales perspective. I've yeah. not gone to the next website. No, no, it's really powerful. And, I, and, and chatbots are doing that today. And, and you can get, you know, if we think about, if you like, that's different from where we are, you can get return on investment from deploying chatbots. You gave a perfect example of it. In retail, you can do that. If you know, mm. if there are relatively fixed parameters around something and you can, you know, to, to a very large degree, predict where people are going to go, you know, what's the size, what's the delivery time and so on. It's almost, it's essentially, and I mean this respectfully, it's a, it's a, a more, it's a more accessible FAQ system. Well, hmm. actually, that's pretty powerful because, as we all know, people don't like reading long lists of FAQs, and maybe they're not easy to find. But if I hmm. can grasp the key details, and you made a decision based on that, a rational one and a good one for that company, great. And and we see those. I think where where we see, I suppose where we're, where our opportunity is is proving to be is, is where you might think of that and. and where, where you would really need perhaps a customer service or some customer care element around that, that becomes very exciting for us. And and what we see, and it's, in some ways it's it's surprising, but it is the way the world still is. We see large enterprises, without naming them, with a number of digital channels, mobile apps, a chatbot, website. They're, they're doing, they're not, these are not laggards. They're doing a good job and they're, they're full of smart engineers and smart people. These are not, nobody's stupid here, right? Mm. They're good at what they do. But because they lack the technology to, if you like, the, the, the conversational understanding piece, the, the meaning piece, they lack that piece, they still are serving huge numbers of customer service telephone calls mm. all, with all the disadvantages we discussed earlier in terms of cost, but also inconvenience and time for users. So that is where we where it becomes very interesting for us. But you're quite right. If you can self-serve in a more limited way, Let's say you want to order a pizza to pick a different example, but probably not a crazy one. There are lots of different types of pizzas, but often it's large, small, or medium, and you know there are different flavors and colors and whatever. But it's not. You can imagine a chatbot doing that, and the way that it will do it is we'll present you with options. Do you want A, B, or C? And often you click a button or you write something very simple, as you know, mm. and it and it drives you down a route. But actually, if that's the route you want to be on, it's fantastic. It's you know why wouldn't you use one? I do. Some of them are really helpful. Yes. So they have utility. I think when you come to automating customer service at scale, that's where they have people have tried lots of companies to try to deploy them in that arena. And I suppose that's where the problems have been. That's that's where the frustration has been. And in, in, I think in the chatbot, when it, this all exploded in 2016, the people had said, well, what we've got, we've got this really useful technology that can do, albeit is linguistically limited, but can help you order things in the way you've described or get a pizza. People would have been much more um, forgiving, I think, and yes. Well, this is really useful. I think yes. the Amazon Alexa device I have is really useful. Mm. It tells me the weather. I, I put music on it. I mean, it's a very useful device. Mm. Does it help me do, you know, complicated things and go back and forth? Well, absolutely no, it doesn't. But does it have a useful role? Of course it does. It's a useful mm. device. Google Homes, the chatbot you use. So there's absolutely utility. But when you come to automating what we'll call customer care, customer service, the utility tends to diminish very, very quickly. And And I think, you know, what, what we know is that the experience of a lot of large enterprises when they've tried to bring this into dealing with human beings via the phone or, or actually via text often, the gap starts to 
start to open really very quickly to a chasm and then people disengage from from those channels but yes if used if if presented properly as the one you used did why would you know, i use them so yes chatbots are not useless chatbots are very useful but they have a limited um the limitation is in terms of the context and i guess if you like the the detail and sophistication of the conversation but that's fine you know sources are in in the early days when when somebody first starts to engage you action ai in in trying to understand what you do how often do you think that they confuse you as being chatbot so less and less but but it's still i think once they're talking with us they probably don't mm. but it's fair to say that if i look back two or three years ago that would that was a, if you like a major issue yes i could see that the issues are slightly different now so what the, the, what's happened with the chatbot world is there's a, the, the the term conversational ai conversational ai has been is, is, is becoming very much the forefront we've been using it for a long time but it's now become a label and i suppose the challenge is there perhaps some companies are putting conversational ai on the websites as a stamp a little bit like they used to put chatbots and that you know that isn't always necessarily faithful to what they're actually deploying. You know, are, sure. are they doing machine learning computation analytics? Sometimes they are, often they're not. So there's always that. Yes. But the way that we communicate what we do is, is quite honestly to, to show people. You know, that at the end of the day, yes. if, if we're talking about supporting people's vernacular and their slang and the way that they change their minds, well, it's much easier than me talking away to just show people. And then they get it and they can see it and... And it's you know as you've seen it, it then it it's, it it tells its own story and then they understand the chatbot and that. Otherwise, it's a slightly theoretical conversation. But mm. when we're in the room with people, that that almost never happens. But it's fair to say, you know, we get, if we get an inbound approach, sometimes those approaches will be, oh, we hear you're really good at chatbot stuff and you can make this thing you know much better, and that's fine. But what we're actually saying is, well, you can keep that. That's doing that. Actually, that's okay there. Mm. We want to automate you know, where you're, frankly, where you're spending all your money, if you want to automate the super majority of your customer service queries, then we're really interested in that. And, and mm. your chatbot can keep doing that basic thing. It's useful. It's setting appointments. Great. Mm. Why would you change that? But if you want to do this, this and, and that's where we get excited, and that's obviously where they get excited too. This is, I mean, this is a, this is a podcast, um, and, and you get the opportunity to say whatever you like. So what are the other, what's the other sort of, key misunderstanding that you would like to clarify because uh-huh. maybe you can sort of, we can sort of take that as a as a little clip and put that onto your onto your website because there always are those misunderstandings i've had that in whatever business i've been in and it can be quite frustrating because you tend to hear the same things and it can change as your business evolves which is is really nice but what would you say is a key misunderstanding for you at the moment what would you like to really get out the way we're not this or or maybe clarify clarify a myth maybe with what you offer yeah, and the technology. That that would be a long answer, I think, in some ways. But but probably the main thing that we see in the market is this conversation about chatbots versus conversational AI, and we hear this. Okay. Unpacking, mm. and the the big companies, Microsoft, Facebook, Amazon, and so on, have done a good job of powering chatbots. They have, and we've discussed whether that's an Amazon Alexa or a text-based service. You can deploy something really quite quickly. Um, and effectively, and you can deploy it if you're a you know a competent engineer. You don't need to be a machine learning computational linguist, and that that's great. It's quick, it's relatively inexpensive, and you get something out the door. However, it is not then a continuum from that to delightful automation at scale. They're, they're mm. totally different approaches. Not to say that either is not to say better or not. It's simply that they're very different approaches solving very different problems. So if you want to if you want to solve um, some simple, if you like, broadly FAQ-based things, you can do a really good job of that with chatbots or a pretty good job with that with chatbots. That will work. But if you want to be able to express, people to express themselves as they would like to without any constraints and be understood and go through their journey happily and get to a, a conclusion that makes them feel positive because they did it quickly and they're now delighted, you need a completely different suite of technologies. You know, I, I used the analogy earlier if, if the big, huge tech companies are boiling the ocean of language, so we can ask about the height of Kilimanjaro and turn on the radio and get the weather in LA, mm-hmm. you know, we're digging deep wells that are a much more, if you like, granular basis linguistically because every word matters to the meaning that we're distilling because we're doing things that are really at the commercial cutting edge, financial services, people making transactions. So your accuracy, you can't be 
somewhat accurate. You can't be generally right. You've got to be right first time every time, which is a really high bar. So they're just very different approaches for very different problem sets. And it's not to denigrate what Google and Facebook and Amazon are doing because it's useful for all of us in different ways. But it isn't automating customer service at scale. And it, it can't be because the approaches, the technology, the academic approach, all of that isn't built to do that. They're boiling the ocean of language, exciting, but they're not enabling very deep experiences in whether that's in banking or healthcare insurance or helping us complete complex forms. It's a very different suite of technologies and a very different suite of approaches. And that's that's where we sit. So we sit very much in the in the second part of described, if you like, delightful automation. They sit in a different place. Both have value depending on what you need as an enterprise and what ROI you're trying to generate. And that's that's the conversation I often have with companies who who may have deployed something using Google and have become frustrated. But arguably, to Google's defense, maybe they've slightly used Google's dialogue, misused dialogue, Google's dialogue flow and tried to move it into automating, you know, quite complex conversations and therefore users are very frustrated. Whereas if they stuck to what it's good at, it might have been fine. But they're, but they're trying, of course, to automate for their customers so they can get things done quickly and easily. And, and that, that technology just doesn't work. You, you can't do it. You can't you can spend as much time and money and engineers on it. You just can't do it. It's a completely different approach. Yes. Uh, as it is chalk and cheese, <laughs> they, they're appealing for different reasons at different times. Good answer. There's, there's quite a few people that um, are running software, involved in the software industry, that will listen to this podcast. So sort of coming to the end of our podcast, this is your second or third venture, and you've gained a lot of experience. What do you think is the biggest lesson that you've learned? Uh, what, do you know, what do you know now that you didn't when you started? Yeah, I think couple of things i think probably i always knew how important people were to a business i did know that we all know that from working and i happen to like working in teams always have i like managing people i, I suppose i like people perhaps yep. but but the appreciation of the importance of the the first handful and the need for them to be basically exceptional as something i've learned in some ways not the hard way but i've learned very clearly so compromising early on about people is a really bad idea and it's really hard not to because your budgets are limited when you first start you know mm. good people are sometimes expensive let's face mm. it but it's hard so you have to find smart ways with options and all sorts of you know and and sell the vision but if you can grab those great people the first half a dozen the first four or five even if you can find a way of grabbing them the difference is immeasurable and the difference is immeasurable if you're trying to build if you like enterprise grade solutions and that's so it's relevant to me because mm you know they maybe they've got lots of usually got quite a bit of experience and then you might find people who are, who are quicker and can do things quick and dirty and that's exciting but actually if that's your foundation at early stage it's not actually that great it sounds all very trendy to build things and break them after five minutes it sounds fantastic but actually it only is if they're things you're exploring and researching it's pretty hopeless if, if the foundation of what you're, uh, that you're building on is 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 like Swiss cheese. You can, it, it really creates a lot of problems. So, you know, in this company, that was probably the first thing that we were incredibly keen to do. How do we get brilliant people from day not 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 wait till we can afford them? How do we configure yes. the first one? And the second one, I suppose, is always about funding. It's about how, I suppose, trying to run a capital efficient company and building a business model that's capital efficient, and that doesn't suit everybody. You know, some people like to like elements of running a business that that don't drive me. But if you want, you know, great flashy offices in multiple countries, you need to re raise very large amounts of money. And that can be totally appropriate because you need to be in market. Your go to market is direct or you're a consumer business that needs to spend quite rightly millions on on advertising just to start to build the model. These are tough benches to raise money for, but it's not always wrong. Trying to build something capital efficient brings a different discipline and it's some ways harder, but it makes it a lot easier when capital does arrive. Because when capital does arrive, you're not sitting in a situation where your overheads are huge, you've made promises you can't keep to all sort, all and sundry, um, you've got people on the books who shouldn't be on the books, you've got consultants who did work that you've lost track of. So that kind of boring, if you want to call it that, operational organisation at the beginning and in year one and year two is much more important than I would have ever thought when I first started out doing this in, well, the first time when I was about 20. And the reason for that is just because, as, as you know from the work you do, but also I know very clearly is 
those things come back to you. So if you, mm. you need to own your IP, well, how do you prove that? Well, it's easy to prove if you organize yourself. If you use 14 contractors and paid them bits of options and you haven't quite got the right contracts, you've actually caused yourself potentially an, an, a, a tremendous headache that might be really very expensive to unwind and critical. So most of it's people. And the second bit is just about either trying to be as capital efficient as possible, but you can't be so cautious that you don't move quickly. And this is the great, this is a judgment call that is not generally, you, you make it based on your own business, don't you? How much money do I need to spend and how quickly to get into this market quickly and make an impact? So there's a point at which you have to spot spending capital and obviously a company that mine has been doing that. But in the first couple of years, how do you spend as little as possible yet get the best people? And that's all about vision and trying to, compensate people and i'm delighted to say the people who started with us you know you know people people don't leave and, and it's not because we handcuffed them or they couldn't make more money i suppose it's because hopefully they're as excited about the opportunity as i am and they're, they're part of it right if it's, yes they're benefiting now from that uh, and they're pioneering and we employ people who were who had an itch to scratch i suppose in their own way uh, mm. so they, we talked about entrepreneurship earlier i don't think there's one or, or two i think it's kind of everybody that all pretty much everyone in this company now, frankly, is is in that mindset because they kind of need to be certainly the core team. So it, it's hard to give a straightforward answer and giving. No, no, no. I understand. So those, those early people, the sort of the, the, the foundational people are setting the culture, but yeah. they're probably also able to attract and retain other good people because you've got that culture within the organization. That makes a lot of sense. It's absolutely critical. Uh, yeah. And if, if you're a deep tech company, if you're going to employ exceedingly smart people, mm. which far smarter than I am, then they need to be working with other very smart people in their domain. And if you build an advisory panel of smart people, that helps. Not because necessarily they're going to get value every day from that, but it sort of gives them knowledge that we're serious about the research, which is the absolute core of everything we do still, even mm. though you know you could argue with... We're never going to be done with that process. So, yeah, get, getting those smart people and giving them an environment. And they do set the culture. Uh, and you can't – and the culture you write down on a piece of paper as a founder is is kind of useless. You work out your culture after you've been going for a few months and you look around you and you say, well, who are these people? Do, do they feel yes. – are these good human beings that want to build something, et cetera, et cetera? And you almost distill your culture from that. And, and whether that's the right process, we could debate all day long. But it, <laughs> it's my experience of how it actually pragmatically works. No, I, I think I agree with that. And, and as regards operational diligence, for me on the M&A side, I've seen that be very painful for a number of business owners who at a time when they're looking to sell their business for whatever reason, that's, that can be like an event like you know, winning the lottery and for that to be held up or even lose that deal because of not able to prove their own IP. And I've seen that. When you when you mentioned that example, that picture came to mind. It is very very painful. Yeah, no, it's a great point, and I, and I think for us, obviously, it's less about that today, but it's certainly about customers and large enterprises. And if you don't have your ducks in a row, you you won't last five minutes because they will quite reasonably ask for a whole lot of information that that you need to have. And you know, you can't go and sit in the corner and, and invent things. And you can never you can never ever be untruthful. So that's no. never an option. So you've got to be clear and you're going to build a relationship for the long term, which is what we do. That's our business model. You've got to have integrity. So sometimes you may not have something and you say, look, we haven't developed that yet. We'll go and do that. But you've nearly always got to be saying, well, yeah, look, this is what we have. Here it is. Here's evidence of A, B, C, D, and E. And, and they go, look at that. And, you know, you, you, you pass their compliance tests. So just for doing business, it's essential. And I can only imagine, you know, in, in your role from the M&A perspective, yes, that it must be absolutely central. It is. Well, thank you very much for today, John. Uh, it's been fascinating talking to you. I found out a little bit more about your company today, and I'm sure that it will um, it will get the interest of quite a few people who listen to this podcast. If somebody wants to reach out and have a look at the business, where are the points of contact? Where should they reach out? Well, why don't I do this, which is, I'm always told not to, but I, I think it's, I'm very happy to. You just simply email me. That would be a good starting point. And I'm john at action.ai. J-O-H-N at action.ai. I can give you lots of other contacts, but contact me and I'll respond. I mean, Super. like all of us on this, listening to this, we've got, I've got quite a big inbox, but I, I do respond and, and, and delighted to engage, whether you're, whether you're just early in this field or you're, you know, thinking of it as a, as a, yes. as a route to employment or whatever it might be, you know, it's, it's an area that this is my passion, frankly. So yes, I can hear that. 
I'm really bored of talking about it. I may bore everybody else, and apologies, <laughs> but I'm really bored by it. Well, no, you, you haven't bored me previously, and I don't think you'll bore people today on this podcast because I think it covered a lot of good points, and we finished up with some t- good takeaways as well. So thank you very much for your time. I think we've been talking for almost exactly an hour, so I think that's good going. And I didn't even look at the clock. I just kept let, kept it rolling, which is really nice. So thank you very much for that, John. And oh, uh, thanks for your time. Thank you very much, Mark. So that is another podcast. This is season three of the Bossit podcast. If there are topics that, uh, if there are points of interest that come from this podcast, then please do reach out to John and myself. And if you think that you have a good story to tell from the software industry and you'd like to come on to Bossit, then to please do drop me a line, medwards at bossequity.com. So thank you very much for listening. And uh, thank you, John, for your time today. Pleasure.